One of the most enjoyable experiences I had at the University of Montana was getting to act as producer for a documentary which was aired uh, on PBS. One of the most miserable experiences I knew at the University of Montana was getting to act as producer uh, for a documentary that aired on PBS. Uh, it was really this like tension between these two poles of having great days and having a really fun time and having really awful stressful days. And, and on the good side, it was fun because I got to piece together this story along with our director and we got to organize shoots um, and send people different places and develop themes and have control. We actually had people um, score the, the film itself and so we had original music coming through. We had And we put together a really good product. In fact, my one interesting fact about me that I get to use whenever I go to a new class or a new place and ask for one fun fact, it actually won an Emmy. Um, and so that's my claim to fame uh, is a student Emmy. And then outside of that, I got nothing. Um, but, but, but that part was fun. But then this, there came this time where you had to make decisions. Um, and I was the one who ultimately had to make those decisions because we shot hundreds of hours of film for what ended up being an hour and 12 minute documentary. And so that means that a lot of people um, didn't get their pieces, their packages, as we call it in the biz, uh, included into the final product. And that was really one of the hardest parts um, of doing this job because here you had groups of people in twos and fours who traveled. Um, one, one crew went, drove eight hours away um, to film this, this uh, piece. They stayed in this location for three days. They captured it. One guy had to go to Billings twice, once because he went there the first time and forgot to have his audio on, um, and then came back and had to go back a second time to reshoot this. And they spent all these hours arranging travel, uh, lodging, transportation to and from where they were staying to the shoots, interviews, logging footage, writing scripts, recording sound bites, monitoring uh, audio levels, spending long hours days working on these packages and after all of that effort they turn to me their brick and I say this isn't going to make it in the documentary this this isn't going to make the cut and no one was like that's really cool I think that's a good idea <laughs> they were disheartened by it they were disappointed in it and rightfully so because basically and not basically straight up what I'm saying to them is this piece isn't good enough all of the work all the effort, all the toil, all the dedication and emotion you put into this, despite your best efforts, it didn't accomplish what you thought it was going to accomplish. It didn't work. And we all fear this, this kind of disappointment, don't we? In all aspects of our life. In fact, I still have this reoccurring dream that has to do with my studies here at the University of Montana. I, dr I have this dream that there's this class that I thought I dropped but I ended up not dropping it. And I keep getting this email the day before that this final is happening tomorrow. And if I don't go take this final, they're gonna like pull my degree that I apparently never got and I have to relive my last six years of life. Um, and I wake up from this dream terrified and I have it like on a reoccurring level. And maybe that's because I'm weird, but all of you probably have this expectation that if you go through school and you don't graduate with the degree you hope to graduate with, you're gonna be disappointed. Some of you, have a specific degree in mind, and you hope that that degree will lead to a specific job, maybe in a specific location, maybe in a specific field of research, uh, a master's program, a position, a place, and you, many of you, will graduate, and you'll realize that the field you desired, the program you wanted to get into, and the place you wanted to live, they're not accepting, or you don't qualify. And you'll take things of a lesser level, and you'll settle knowing that everything you did for the last four years and wrestling with this tension, it's not having the payout you wanted it to. And we all have this, whether we're in a dating relationship or not, we all have this with relationships, right? No one enters into a relationship saying, I can't wait to get to know this person, to spend time watching chick flicks that I don't want to watch, to sharing the deep secrets of my heart, just to have them walk away and never talk to me again. And yet when we enter into relationships, that's kind of the dance we dance is trying not to become so invested in this that when it falls apart, as sometimes they often do, we're disheartened. We all seek to minimize disappointment in our own lives. And it's the sense of disappointment that Paul is writing about tonight in Romans 9 and 10, but he's writing on the ultimate scale. Because while it's a big thing to realize um, that your package isn't making it into a documentary, bigger to realize 
your degree, you have to take another year, or maybe your degree was a waste, or maybe the person you thought was going to be the one you marry, you've discovered that it's not who you're going to spend your life with. An even bigger aspect that we could be disappointed in is in regards to our eternal salvation. And that's what Paul is talking about tonight. And typically, when we think of the future, when we think of our salvation, we think of it in two ways. Either apathetic, with, with great apathy, like, don't know, don't care. Or we think of it with kind of blind optimism. Like, I think I should, that should be good. I think I've done enough. I'm not going to think about it. Because it's, it's obvious that I'm going to make it in. Paul, however, knows that if those are the ways, if that's the way you think about your salvation, whether you realize it or not, you're burdened with uncertainty. Because you don't really know. Either hoping it'll work out, or saying, I don't really care if it works out. We all have this longing in us, will our life have mattered? Will we have done enough to merit either a good memory here on earth or eternal salvation um, somewhere? And Paul wants to give us confidence in an area as drastic as this. He wants to come alongside you and the biggest cosmic question you have in your life, he wants to give you certainty on. He wants you to know. He wants you to have a rote explanation of your confidence in the same way someone asks you um, what your name is or where you were born or what your birth date is. He wants you to be able to rattle off what your hope is that you will get in to heaven. And this is what we're going to see tonight. Tonight we're going to see that without gospel faith, passionate people will miss the mark, evangelism will enslave, and no one will be slaved or slaved. That's good. That's optimistic. Uh, passionate people miss the mark. Evangelism will enslave, and no one will be saved. So let's pray. Lord, I pray um, that as we look at the last part of Romans 9 and Romans 10 today, that um, you grant us certainty, that you grant us um, knowledge unto salvation, that you make us a people who live differently because we have a secure confidence because we know where our eternity lies. And because of that, we live differently in this present. We love differently, we serve differently, we give differently, we worship differently, we think of our career differently, our studies differently, and our relationships differently because the greatest question, the greatest unknown, the worst possible outcome has been done away with because of the confidence of the gospel. And so we pray that happens tonight. We pray that that's visible here on campus, in our dorm rooms, in our relationships um, with friends and coworkers. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, those of, us, uh, those of you who are with us, we looked at Romans 9, which is a big passage in terms of what's called the sovereignty of God. That God is big, strong, powerful, and in control of everything. And we looked last week that God's love is a choosing love. He elects people. He chooses people. And that, Romans 9, is from God's perspective. When God looks down on humanity, he looks as a choosing God. That means God's responsibility in our salvation is choosing to love us. No one loves unless God first loves them. That's what John says in 1 John. Uh, Paul says in Romans, we love, er, um, we love because he, f no, that's John. What am I saying? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love enabled us to respond to him. And so that's from God down. What Romans 10 now does is immediately after Paul stresses the importance of God acting, he looks from man up. What's man's responsibility under a sovereign God? Does having a sovereign God mean we don't care and we, if we die and God's chosen us, we end up in heaven, and if we die and God hasn't chosen us, we end up in hell? That's, that's exactly what Paul is pushing back against, and he's stressing our responsibility in everything today. And it's actually like, uh, I, I thought of it today just as I was driving here, it's like a, a concert pianist, where it's the man sitting on, uh, you're a pianist, Luke, does the bench have a special name? Johnny, does it have a special name? Piano bench. <laughs> They're called pianists, and they sit on a piano bench. That's the lamest thing I've ever heard. Um, but there's this guy sitting on his uh, piano mezzanine, we'll call it that, sounds better, um, and he's pressing the keys. He's in control of everything. But if the strings don't resound, if they don't vibrate, if they don't produce noise, he's not really doing anything. But when God 
acts, there's a response for everybody he's interacting with. And that response is what makes the sound beautiful. That's what brings a fullness to our salvation and glory to the one who's playing the piano and arranging our salvation. And so to know this better, let's look uh, at the opening verses tonight, Romans 9, 30 through 33. This is what Paul says. What then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stone of stumbling. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now I want us to understand the, the beehive that Paul has just poked in the church in Rome when he, he, he said what he just said. Because we need to understand Paul's writing to this church which has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And there's history behind that. The Jews were the coffee snobs, right? They're the people, they had the Chemex, they had their paper filters, pH balance, they had their burr grinders, they had the law, God spoke to them, they're God's chosen people, they had everything they needed. God gave them the blueprint for salvation and he said, be holy as I am holy. He had spoken to them directly and told them how they should live to inherit God's favor and to inherit God's righteousness. And they did everything possible to follow what God had said. And then there were the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were drinking pre-ground Folgers off their shelf by just adding water. It was instant coffee land in the Gentile house. They didn't care about God's righteousness. They were pagans. They didn't even care about acting rightly. They didn't care about pleasing anyone. They were godless. They're foreign. God gave them no special revelation like he gave the Israelites. And here Paul says, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, they got righteousness. The Jews who pursued righteousness by means of the law didn't get righteousness. Why? That's, that's a big scandal for people reading this, but why is it that those who pursued not, outside of God's election, those who pursued not got it, and those who pursued through works didn't get it? Romans 9, 20, er, 32 says this. Why? Because they, that's Israel, did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so here God says that my election is absolutely true. Everything I said in Romans 9, that God has chosen to make vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy so that he might be glorified by saving people. That's true. But he also says from the human perspective, you see the responsibility of each of these groups. It, People were counted righteous, not by works, but by faith. Which means you had two groups of people here. Why were the Gentiles saved? Because they believed and they had faith. Why were the Israelites not saved? Because they failed to believe. There were reasons to why some people got God's righteousness and why some people didn't get God's righteousness. And Paul calls this, he actually uses two quotes from Isaiah and smashes them together here. He calls Jesus a stumbling block. They have fallen into a stumbling stone, uh, literally a rock of scandalu, a rock of offense, a rock of scandal. And here's the rub. Paul's using this metaphorical language to talk about Jesus as the stumbling stone, this obstacle. And every person who has ever lived has had to encounter this obstacle. There's no other path in life. All of our paths will ultimately run into the obstacle of Jesus Christ. And every person has two choices, cut and dried, no third options, no burrowing, no flying powers, no leaping ability. Choice one, stumble over the stone and don't make it to the end. It's not a stumbling stone like in hurdles where you, 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 you trip over a hurdle and you could get up and run again. It's a stumbling stone like when you're playing lava as a kid and you get burned by the lava and die forever. <laughs> you don't get up from that stumbling stone. Option two is you believe in the stone. 
And Paul says to these people who Paul just crushed their hopes, if you do this, you will not know shame. You will not be put to shame. And so I want to warn us here, because we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, this first century division that isn't really present on our minds right now. But, but I want to, to, again, remind us who Paul is speaking to. Paul is speaking to simply two groups of people. Both of those people groups think that they have done enough to merit God's salvation. But what Paul is saying with great clarity is that one of them is deceived. That there are people in the church of Rome who think that they have deserved God's righteousness, deserved God's salvation, but one of them is going to be put to shame. They will face shame on the last day. Actually, the original text from Isaiah says, you will flee in haste. Like a dog with its tail between its legs, realizing that it bit off more than it could chew. Can you imagine that feeling, that cosmic feeling? of thinking you did everything right here on earth. You went to church, you read your Bible, you did the Christian thing, and then you got to heaven and realized that your whole life was a sham. That you didn't make it. That's the reality of some of the people Paul's writing at here. But he's also saying, it's not a mystery. You're responsible for that failing. And I wanna help you know where you failed. And that distinction between those who lived rightly and were deceived and those who believed and were not put to shame is faith rightly understood. That's the distinction. What separates the Jews from the Gentiles, what separates the saved from the unsaved is believing rightly. You see, underneath the God who elects and saves, Paul is stressing our responsibility and he wants you to know the great confidence you can have under a sovereign God. That should be a confidence-producing theology in our own lives. And so what Paul is going to do now, he's going to define what right faith is because everyone loves faith, right? You got to have faith, faith, faith. I've been quoting like old nasty music the last two weeks now. Um, George Michael and Huey Lewis in the the news. So this is good. Uh, Everyone likes faith. And we see two people with faith, but only one people group with faith that preserved One person had faith in the law. One person had faith in righteousness. And so Paul wants us to get definite with our faith. When you think of your faith, what do you think of? What defines that? Faith isn't an object. Faith is an action. What's the object of your faith? And so Paul is going to start defining and shaping how faith changes our lives, beginning with, what we're going to see first is that faith is greater than zeal. Zeal is this passion, um, this activity, this angst. Let's look at Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is here, right? He's not trying to say some of you will be saved, some of you will not. You'll never know until you die. Live, Live well in that time period. He's saying some of you will be saved and some of you won't. Let me tell you why. Why is it that some of you will fail? And Paul is defining this. And, and, and Paul says, largely, the problem with the Jews is that you're overzealous. Now, zeal's a good thing, right? We love zeal. And, and when we think about things, if someone says, I worship, but I worship without zeal, we'd say, well, can you really worship without passion? Can you really worship without engaging your emotions at some level? If someone says, I love my wife, but I don't love her zealously, we'd say, well, do you really love your wife. And so while zeal is good, Paul here is saying, hey, be cautious with your zeal. And I think that's something that's really relevant, especially in today's landscape of Christianity. Because in today's landscape, zeal or passion or emotion is really seen as the litmus test of your faith, right? If you're a real quick Christian, show me how emotional your singing is. 
If you're really a quick a, a Christian, if you're really a Christian, show me this angst and this longing, this yearning in your prayers. If you're really a Christian, show me this urgency which attends to your faith. And those are all good things. But if they're not tied to something, what are we really talking about? I heard what one ma uh, major secular article uh, did a profile piece on a megachurch in New York, and she said of one of the songs, she said the lyrics were hot, breathed, and sexy, close. That's zealous. But her next line was, it made me feel weird. <laughs> so what is this zeal about? I was listening to uh, a worship song the other day, um, and in the middle of it, this singer lady started like pleading with me. She was like, raise your hands, raise your voice, shout out, make a noise, surrender yourself. And those are all things the Bible tells us to do. But here she is telling us to do it. And my question is, while her pleas are heavy with zeal and heavy with passion and heavy with things with, which often accompany faith, what's that zeal about? What am I actually responding to? If I start making noises and throwing my hands up and being passionate and making a shout, what am I shouting about? What am I zealing for? Is that the active form of zeal? What am I zealous for? That's probably better. Thanks, Jackson. I like zealing. Can we make it a word? Okay, zealing. It's the active participle of it. Uh, and, and so Paul warns us about this empty zeal. Actually, we're going to see it. We're going to come back to it in Romans 12, 11, where Paul says this. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Do you hear that? Paul called zeal slothful, lazy. You see, it's really easy. This weekend, millions of people will prove it's easy to be lazy with your emotions. Because we will see the three people who sat up here, who don't know anything about football except for Jackson, who I think won the fake made-up game, um, and they will get excited about football. They will stand up as the rest of people stand up. They will get anxious as the rest of the people get anxious, but they have no idea what's going on here. They'll understand the vast concept of things, but what are they really getting excited about? More than anything, they're getting excited about the aura of football, the culture of football, the community of football. And you see, that's because at that point, on Sunday, when we're all sitting there, and I hope it's a close game, it's a lot easier to let yourself follow the emotions of the other people around you rather than learning the details of the game to figure out why it is you should be emotional in the first place. It's easy to respond in emotion. It takes effort to dwell on the richness of what actually causes us to respond with passion. That's why Paul says in Romans 10 verses 2 through 3 this, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of righteousness, the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, Paul doesn't throw around this term zeal lightly because Paul, when he looks back at his life as a Jew, he says in Philippians 3, I was the most zealous of the Jews. Paul knew what it was like to throw your whole emotion, your whole sense of urgency, longing, this earnestness to pursuing something. And he knew for himself, now looking back, how empty that was. You see, zeal detached from knowledge of the gospel is not true zeal. The object of your zeal is what makes that emotion or that passion sincere or not sincere, good or bad. You see, we should live as zealous people. You see, Paul himself, the same guy warning us of zeal here, actually says later, be zealous for good works. We should be passionate. We shouldn't be deadpan uh, Christians. Christ has redeemed our emotions. He's redeemed our, what, what, I, what I don't like are the, the stoic men that some of us men will grow into where we stand in church and we look like nothing. It's like we're doing like silent torture treatment of just standing there static. How can we stand? And we go and we think we're this pious Christian. That doesn't mean all of you have to raise your hands and dance around and spin and sing and shout, but it means that the gospel, if it doesn't elicit some sort of emotional response from us, you probably don't understand the gospel. I can tell you if someone was threatening my family and I just stood there deadpan, I really don't love them. 
We all respond differently, but if Christ doesn't stir your emotions in the right way, it's just as bad as not having Christ stir your emotions in the wrong way. And here's what I want you guys to do. This is an experiment I want you to do. Um, I did this myself. We've done it as a church, um, and, and it's embarrassing sometimes. I want you to look at the worship music you listen to um, in your church or in your car, on the radio, on Spotify, on your phone, wherever it is you typically listen to worship music. And I want you to ask yourself this question while you're listening to it. If a non-believer who's not a Christian was listening to this song, would it be clear what they're responding to? I just today went and listened to some songs that are really popular. They're on the Christian radio right now. And it really sounds like if someone came in, it's like we're singing Weathermen. It's like the torrent of God's downpour, cyclones of God's affection, thunderstrikes of God's mercy. And it's like we just have all these weird words that are passionate and heavy. But what are we really talking about when we talk about this? And for people who are mature Christians, when we hear these weird words, and these analogies that are really passionate and really emotional, we can, in maturity, connect dots to say, well, there's this, this downpour, there's this, uh, this heaviness, the gospel's heavy, it, it soaks our soul, we can connect it to some of the language in the Psalms, but it's like this bread trail that we have to follow to get to the real content of it. But as we, if, as we gather as a church, Are we teaching people to worship clear and understandable statements of the gospel or are we teaching them to worship emotion? That if this stirs your heart in some way, that means you're a Christian. If this elicits some sort of emotional response, that means you understand things rightly because that writer of that piece, it affected her in a real and emotional way. But that doesn't mean she's a believer. Are we teaching them to respond for the sake of response? You see, in our age demographic, college people are angsty. We're emotional. We're raw. And this is where we need to train our hearts to respond rightly. We need to not be driven by zeal itself, but driven by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because zeal on its own, raw emotion, raw passion, as good, as flashy, as solid as that shows will leave you disappointed because there will be a day when your emotion and your zeal fails you, but there will never be a day when the gospel of Jesus Christ fails you. The gospel in clarity, not the gospel in vague, undefined terms, but the gospel in the reality of what it stands for, of Christ coming and dying for your sins and rising again, that will never leave you. And that's what sustains your zeal in seasons when you have no passion. That's what breathes life into our dead soul in seasons of dryness. And I could tell you this, Paul, it wasn't driven by the excitement of mission or the thrill of the worship service when he was compelled to endure shipwreck, torture, prison, famine, persecution, and distress. It was the weight of the gospel rightly understood which drove Paul to endure all these things for the sake of the objective gospel. And the knowledge of that true gospel gave him confidence and the necessary zeal to endure these trials. Look back again at Romans uh, 10, verses 3 through 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish the righteousness of their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so here Paul says they didn't seek God's righteousness but they're zealous for God. They're zealous for something, but what does he define that as? Zealous for their own righteousness. We need to be very careful and we need to be diagnostic with our own affections because what can subtly happen is we place our own confidence in our performance or in our passion or even in our experience where because we've had heartfelt moments of worship, because we've had minutes of this weird transcendent emotion, we think we'll be saved because we have those. We think that God will accept us because in my heart I've really felt something. But if that's your confidence, what you're really finding as your hope is your own ability to feel 
discern, and experience. That's promoting your own righteousness. That's not finding the righteousness of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. That's a way of self-salvation. And that will leave you disappointed. Secondly, Paul's going to frame uh, faith in the law and faith uh, in the gospel. He's going to frame it in terms of evangelism because all faith needs to be expressed. We are all either good or bad evangelists. We're going to talk more about evangelism next week. If there's one thing I want us that I want to shape this group this semester more than any time in the history of GCF is in evangelism. And you are right now evangelizing. Whether it's through your lack of evangelism or in your presence of evangelism, either good or bad, we're evangelizing. We're showing the priority of our faith. We're preaching the weight of the gospel. It's just a matter of is that accurate and is that life transforming or is it not? And here we see how our evangelism can sometimes be made lacking. We see these two means of evangelism in Romans 10, verses 5 through 9. For Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law. So here's one, the first evangelist. What is he writing? The person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith, the other form of evangelism, says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into the heaven that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the second point Paul wants us to know, the first point is that um, faith is greater than zeal. The second point is that faith is the gospel made accessible. Faith is the gospel made accessible. And due largely in part to the zeal that Paul just spoke of um, and and these zealous Jews seeking to find righteousness by the law, evangelism um, became this burdensome aspect of legalism. You have to do. You have to look. You have to act. And, And did you see the incomplete evangelism attempt of people who think this way, who think you could have righteousness outside of of Jesus? Verse five, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That person who does the commandment shall live by faith, or excuse me, shall live by them. If we don't understand, I want you to hear this, this is big. If you understand one thing about evangelism from today's message, this is the second thing. The first thing comes in verse 13. You can write that down later. (laughs) Um, This is the second thing I want you to know. If you don't understand the role of faith in the believer's life, you don't understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you can't articulate the gospel. And if you can't articulate the gospel, you're a lousy and dangerous evangelist. This is what Paul is talking about here. And how many times have you maybe said yourself or have you heard a message very similar to what Paul just said the Judaizers said? To be saved, you must live by the commandments. To be saved, you must live by God's rules. To be saved, you must obey God and we need to obey God. We must obey God. There's nothing wrong with obeying God. In fact, the New Testament talks a lot about obeying God. But if that's as far as your gospel goes, you don't know the gospel. And and when the gospel is tied to our obedience, our obedience which merits salvation, we've actually made the message of salvation a burden and it enslaves us because we now think that salvation is this program where we have to live in a specific way and we, it, our life becomes this cosmic eggshell dance where we're scared to do something or to not do something for fear that we'll mess up the equation and we won't ultimately get in. There's this fear then um, that, that we have to act a certain way in front of certain people so that they would see us and acknowledge us in such a way so that God then might too acknowledge us based on how we act, live, think, and do. But there are two problems with this. First, is it to get the righteousness of God? And again, we talked about this back in the first semester when Paul talks about the righteousness of God in Romans. He's talking about our salvation in Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is our righteousness, appeared. Okay? God's righteousness is pass fail. That means if you take those commandments that these people say, live by the commandments, 
It's not if you pass over 70% of the time, you get a passing grade. It's pass-fail. If you fail at one of his commands, you fail the whole test. That's the stumbling block. You can't get out of it. You're dead in the water. There's no redos. There's no save games. There's no pause. You failed. And so the burden of that message is live this way. If you haven't lived that way, there's no way you could ever live that way. You've already been disqualified. That's the first reason why that's burdensome. The second reason it's burdensome is it takes the path of salvation and points it to something other than Christ. It points it to your ability to live by a specific set of commands. And we do this in our own life. Maybe it's not through trying to obey the Torah like it was for the Jews, but we're so concerned with things and activities um, that surround Jesus or influence our lives that we actually look past the person of Jesus. Outside of a name and a centralized face for Christianity, Jesus just kind of becomes this character in a story we're more concerned about our own role in. You see, it's so easy to explain the gospel and to evangelize without ever using the word Jesus. We'll substitute God. We'll throw around a lot of God's love. We'll throw around faith, maybe. But if you think you can effectively share the gospel, or even def- uh, describe how you were saved without saying Jesus' name, you're not saved by the God of the gospel. Because Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your salvation. This is where Paul then gives, in contrast to that first message, the gospel of faith. Verses 6 through 9. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul here is actually poking fun at the Jews because he's making the case for the gospel, um, the faith based on righteousness from the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament here. Um, and, and what he's saying is at this point, the Jews who don't believe, they don't believe for a couple reasons. One, they don't believe Jesus is from God. So they don't believe Jesus came down from heaven. And two, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, who of you will go up into heaven and convince God to bring the Messiah down? No one. He says, who of you then will go down into the grave and convince the Messiah to come back to life? No one, because it's impossible. We can't do that. But why is it impossible? Outside of our inability to raise someone from the dead, it's impossible because God had already done that. God had already brought their salvation. God had already brought Jesus to the earth. Look again at Romans 10, 8 and 9. But what does it say? What is our message of evangelism? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The message of evangelism, which understands faith rightly, is the simple message of the gospel. That's it. Paul just outlined it for us. The gospel isn't that God loves us. The gospel isn't that I have faith. The gospel isn't that I go to church. The gospel isn't that I found God. The gospel is Christ came to us. Christ died for us. And we must believe that he took our sins and gave us his righteousness and he was raised again. You see, the problem is, is when our evangelism and when our understanding of faith drifts from what Paul just says, the quest for salvation becomes this cosmic Easter egg hunt where we start throwing in these detailed levels of things we have to achieve or things we have to do or there's really nothing. What is it? What what do I need to do to be saved? Well, you need to surrender your life to God and live rightly. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for someone in Africa? What does that mean For a child, what does that mean for an adult? It's so undefined, it's so undescript, there's great uncertainty with that. But it's not rocket science. 
To get into heaven, you don't have to pass a theology three exam. You don't have to have a doctrinal statement on transubstantiation. You have to know the simplicity of the gospel. Salvation isn't appealing to God for some merit-based or individualized system of salvation. Faith, this is the beauty of faith. Faith takes the gospel and makes it accessible to everyone. You can know and respond to the gospel through faith. Because faith acknowledges that the gospel has already come to us. You see, faith isn't a uh, a GPS system that plots the course to where you will go to find salvation. Faith is an anchor that reaches back at the event in which Christ already secured your salvation. Jesus earned that salvation for you. Jesus upheld the law. We fall on him. And in him, we are saved. You see, if your salvation, when you think about it right now, what it is that gets you salvation if your salvation isn't about, isn't about your subjective and ever-changing emotional zeal, if your salvation isn't about your ability to do right more than you do wrong and to earn God's favor, then you have found a great confidence before God because your salvation is about you doing one simple thing and God doing the amazing thing. This is Paul's last point. Faith is our confidence. Um, I, I'm a really anxious traveler. Uh, and when I go to airports, I just, as soon as I walk through the gate, it's like, this is the worst place I could be. And I'm always paranoid. I feel like TSA and airline employees are actually, it's like the Frogger game. They're the trucks you have to dodge. Their goal is to not let you get to where you're trying to go. Um, and so what I do is I will, uh, we have the technology on our phones to have your tickets on it. I want the ticket in my hand. I want to hold it. I want to have it. Like I will go through security with my hand in my pocket holding the ticket. Because my worst nightmare is to get to my gate and, and see I don't have a ticket there. In, in the realm of our salvation, Our faith is the ticket we need to cling to. It should be the most important inventory item in your whole entire life. Because it answers the question, how do you know that you're saved? Answer this right now in your head. Someday, you will all get called before God. And let's say God says to you, he's standing at the pearly gates. This is what Pastor KJ calls his million dollar question. God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? Remember, this day, it's, it's, we're not like going up to heaven. We're like, hey, there's Dave, there's Kyle. Yeah, let's go on cotton candy clouds. The Bible calls this the great and terrible day of the Lord. You face eternal damnation or eternal bliss with your heavenly father. And God says, tell me why you live and you do not die. What are you going to point to? Are you going to point to your emotional zeal? One commentator said about zeal, sincerity is not enough, for we may be sincerely mistaken. Passion doesn't get you into heaven. Will you point to your ability to live a good life or to simply have given your life over to God's overarching plan? That's indefinite. That's nondescript. What does that even mean, God will say to you? And that won't suffice. Or will you take confidence in what Paul says in Romans 10? Verses 10 through 13. For with the heart, one is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him on that great and terrible day of the Lord will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why will you be saved? Is it because you're a Gentile, not a Jew? And that's how God chooses. He switched between testaments. He switched who gets his favor. If you're a Gentile, you get in. If you're Jew, you get out. No. How will you be saved? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're Greek or free, you will be saved because you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth. That's your confidence before God. But won't we be saved because God elected you? Yes. But you will be saved on your end and your responsibility 
Not by blindly trusting God's election, but by consciously and willfully confessing and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not believing the gospel according to culture. It's funny how words become so broad in, in our uh, presidential election right now. Evangelical, all the evangelicals are apparently voting for Donald Trump. And apparently that means I don't know any evangelicals um, because no one I know is voting for Trump. But words can take on this like snowball effect. And the gospel is one of those words where the gospel is anything that has to do with God at any point in your life. The gospel is what Paul is defining for us. The good news isn't that God loves you. That's not the good news. The good news is that God loves you and he came to save you with his son, Jesus Christ. The idea that God loves is great, but we're already on the outside of that love. The gospel bridges that gap. And Paul defines the gospel here. He outlines it for you. Okay, if, I, if, this, if you had, I saw there's a psychology test that got canceled on the door here. Let's say we're all in that psychology class. It's your final. And I give you a list of all of the answers to that test, and I say, who wants it? You'll all come and get it. Paul's giving you the answer to the test of your salvation. What do you need to believe? Not just believe in your head, but just believe in your heart. You need to believe Jesus is Lord, Jesus died for your sins, and God raised Jesus from the dead, and you too will be raised. That's the beautiful follow-up. That's the simple equation to the greatest need in your life. What you need to know, Christ is Lord, I am not. Christ died not as a witness, not as a leader, not as a teacher. He died as a sacrifice for my sins. And he beat death so that I too can beat death through him. And if that's your answer, you will not be disappointed. You will not be put to shame. You will stand on that great and terrible day and you will say, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. You see, let's face it. There's not much you could be sure of here on earth. We can't even be sure of our own university right now. It's getting audited and inspected by just, my son's probably inspecting the university somewhere and he's three years old. We're not sure, our, 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 the ground underneath us is changing. Our government is changing. Our social security, the thing that's supposed to grant us confidence in the coming years, is probably just going to go away. We don't know who's going to win the Super Bowl, let alone what's going to happen to our ozone layer. But when you woke up today and you said in your heart, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he is my savior, you have the confidence that the cosmic savior of the world will not turn you away from life and death eternally. You have the greatest certainty the world will ever know because you believe it to be true and you confess it with your mouth and you want to know why you'll be saved tomorrow because you'll believe the same thing. And if you stop believing it, you probably never tasted it because why would you stop? If I gave you the questions and you chose to throw them away, did you ever really believe the questions would answer the, would answer the test? That the questions would meet the demand? But when you wake up and believe, we should be in awe of our faith because our faith will not leave us with the gut-wrenching disappointment of living a life that looked good, sounded good, and even felt good towards Christ, but was void of him. And for this salvation, there is no distinction. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not those with access to seminaries, not those with access to English translations of the Bible, not those with access to the internet, not those with a higher spiritual capacity or a greater IQ or a better life. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The same gospel that saves you, it's the same gospel that saves other people. That means contrary to the straw man argument, Paul's doctrine of election didn't stifle his evangelism. It fueled his evangelism because he saw God as being rightly responsible for election, but he saw we're responsible for calling out and responding in faith. That means Paul didn't worry about who's elect. Paul worried about who had a tongue and who had a heart, who could believe, who could be spoken to, for if they have a heart, and if they can believe, 
And if they were made in the image of God, we then go and proclaim the glory of the clear gospel and the beauty of faith. And we carry this message to the ends of the earth because we know that there's no distinction. There's no one disqualified because on this end, on this end is Tyler in his wounded communication skills and his awkward sweaty armpits. But on this end is the sovereign God, creator of the world, crafter of the gospel, redeemer of souls. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You see, the gospel relies on the faith that men don't change themselves, but Christ came so that he himself would change men. And this defines our life. So my question to you is, do you have that faith? Do you have the faith of Romans 10? Because if you don't have that faith, you will know God's wrath. And if you're uncertain on that, look at what Paul defined. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will lead to your justification and salvation for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you answer, if you can answer that question and you commit yourself to waking up tomorrow and answering that question again, does that faith drive you? Man, if we've dodged the greatest disappointment the world has ever known, how does that change the way we handle disappointments here? If we know the message of salvation with certainty, not that this works for white middle-class Americans, but it won't work for Hindus, but this works for everyone in all places. Won't that drive us to then go with that message to all places? If we know the disappointment here on earth, won't we have a greater idea of the disappointment we know in heaven and then a greater taste of the beauty of the gospel, which God has made known to us, not through archaic hidden means, but through the beauty of Christ's gospel that we may lay hold of and take home in and dwell in through our faith. One day that faith will be exchanged for glory and we won't need it because we see Jesus. But in this life, do you cling to that faith knowing that that's what will get you through? That's what will motivate you because underneath that faith is the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that shapes Grizzly Christian Fellowship in this room and outside these walls. Let's pray.